The big question is, how does someone with MS actually improve their mobility, strength, energy, independence, the list goes on. My name is Dr. Gretchen Hawley, physical therapist and multiple sclerosis specialist. Welcome to the Missing Link Podcast. Tune in as I share the top strategies and exercises to help you gain control over your life with MS using research-driven insights and advice from top industry experts. Whether you're newly diagnosed or have had MS for over 30 years, whether you have relapsing MS or progressive MS, this podcast is for you. You're sure to feel empowered and inspired after each episode. Ready? Let's dive in. Hello, everyone. Thank you for tuning in today. I have a very special guest with me, Dr. Joshua Katz. Dr. Katz is the director of the Elliott Lewis Center and a nationally recognized expert in multiple sclerosis, NMO, MOG-associated disease, and transverse myelitis. I've worked alongside Dr. Katz for many years and shared many clients. He's one of the few neurologists who truly listens to you and your symptoms and will spend the time necessary to brainstorm solutions for living your best life with MS. Not only that, the Elliott Lewis Center provides cutting edge care and access to all of the available therapeutic options and strategies. On today's episode, Dr. Katz talks about the newest disease-modifying therapy for MS, BriumV. He shares what it is, how it works, its efficacy, and how it compares to other available disease-modifying therapies. Dr. Katz, thank you so much for being here with us today. My pleasure. Nice to see you. Yeah. So our listeners don't know this, but you and I somewhat used to work alongside each other several years ago. We had a lot of the same mutual patients. Yeah. I mean, directly right alongside each other. You were in a practice that was literally across the hall and we sent most of our MS patients, if not all of them, we tried to send them to you because you were so good at what you do. Yeah, I remember it was so helpful having you guys there for many reasons, but one reason with lots of my clients, I was working on helping them stand up from low surfaces with better strength and better balance. And we used to use the chairs in your guys' office just because it was a different setting. And that's one thing that can be helpful for MS. So we were over there frequently. Yeah, well, we miss having you around. We have somebody who's doing a great job, but we still have patients who follow you on the internet and are sorry to not have you in the area. Yeah, that's awesome. So before we get into our topic of the day today, I was hoping I could ask you a question from our interview deck to help our listeners get to know you a bit better. Is that okay with you? Sounds good. Let's go. All right. Just going to shuffle over here. Your question is, oh, two stuck together. If you are musically inclined, who would you want to have a private jam session with? If I were musically inclined, I have to pick my favorite band, which nobody's ever heard about. So I'd probably pick Rob Crow, who is the sort of the, well, there are two guys, actually. There's one of the two guys in this band, Pinback. So I guess I'd have to do with him. So nobody knows that. So it doesn't really, you know, it's not all that <laughs> So there are going to be a bunch of people Googling that band and being like, I never heard of these guys. Before. Yeah. So what music, what instrument of choice would you choose? Oh, I'd have to choose the guitar. And I've actually thought you know, maybe I'd get a guitar and start fiddling around with that at some point. But then the thought occurs to me, it's like, there's kind of nothing more pathetic than a guy in his fifties, like picking up the guitar. 
<laughs> hey, you can learn a new skill at any age. <laughs> I know it's a, it's a bad approach to have because I actually might do it someday. It's just like, you know, the optics of it don't appeal to me. Right, right. <laughs> awesome. Well, that was a, a fun question. I'm glad you got that one. So let's dive in. So there recently, within, I think it was March, a newer disease-modifying therapy for MS that was released. Can you share, you know, what is the name and how does it work? Yeah. So the newest medication to be released is Briumvi, which it's interesting that they just get progressively harder and harder to pronounce. Briumvi or Ublituximab is another medication that's in the same class as several that have already been released. So there's the class of medications are called anti-B cell therapies. The first one to come out was Ocrevus, which was in 2017. Kesimta came out like 2020, I believe, and now there's Riumvi or Ublituximab. And it's very much in the same line with these other medications. In fact, I think it's very hard to distinguish between these medications. If you look at safety, efficacy and tolerability. They're all so similar that I really don't think there's meaningful daylight between any of these drugs, at least at this point. There are certain subtle differences, which I can talk about, but Briumvi is an IV treatment. It was studied to look at whether or not it was effective for relapsing forms of multiple sclerosis. It's an IV treatment that targets a protein called CD20. So it's a monoclonal antibody that has one specific target, And CD20 is a marker for a kind of white blood cell called a B lymphocyte, and it basically knocks them out. Uh, And that's the same thing that Ocrevus does. It's the same thing that Kesimta does. And actually, before that, there was a medication, Rituxan, which has been around for 20 years. And we did use that to treat multiple sclerosis also, although that's never been FDA approved for it. So all of these drugs in a class basically function almost exactly the same. So what are the differences between them? Well, both Ocrevus and Briumvi are IV treatments, and they're given every six months. Kesimta is an injectable medication. You give it to yourself every one month as a subcutaneous injection. That's the big difference. Small differences, especially between Ocrevus and Briumvi, the differences appear to be very small. Briumvi can be given an hour faster than Ocrevus. Briumvi is it's a different antibody, and that means it may function a little bit differently. It seems like perhaps the effect of Briumvi may last a little bit longer than Ocrevus, and that can cut both ways. That can be good or bad, actually. There may be ways that we can use that to our advantage, and then maybe times where you don't want that to happen. But the truth is, if I have to decide between these two medications, which one between Briumvi and Ocrevus I would prescribe, it's really hard for me to say I have a reason to choose one over the other at the moment. At least Kesimta versus the other two drugs there, it's really about how do you want to take your medication? Do you want to come in every six months and get an IV or do you want to give it yourself? Some of that depends on your proximity to an infusion center and your preference and what's more convenient. But other than that, like I said, hard to tell them apart. So it's not really a big breakthrough. I guess one other distinguishing thing is in the clinical trial for Ocrevus, they did a trial on progressive multiple sclerosis or or primary progressive. Briumvi and Kesimta did not do any trials on progressive MS. So we don't have data, but again, there's kind of no reason to think since these drugs work identically, that there'd be a difference in how they work. I mean, if you're purely data-driven, you'd say, yep, we've got to go with Ocrevus if you have primary progressive MS, because that's the only one that has approval. All right, I'm going to stop talking for a second because that was a lot. 
No, yeah, that's all really helpful. So do you think it's beneficial to have more and more of these medications that are basically one-offs of Ocrevus if they're just such small differences? Are they actually going to make any better difference? Maybe not so much. I mean, I, I will tell you, I don't, I'm not that excited about a new drug in the same class. We've seen the same thing happen with Gilenia was the first drug called an S1P receptor modulator. Now we've got four of them. They're a big difference. No, I mean, you know, having choices is always good if for one reason or another, you can't take one of these drugs. I can already give you an example of where I am glad to have had an option, but I think it's going to be a rare occurrence. So I have a patient who's been on Ocrevus. And one of the things that we measure when you're on Ocrevus is we look at your B cells and they should be pretty much zero, you know, because we're knocking them out. Well, this person, they were never zero. In fact, they're always in the normal range. So something funny was going on there. And then this person had a relapse on Ocrevus. And so now I can switch them to Briumvi to see if maybe that antibody is going to work better. And I actually don't know the answer. So maybe this will be helpful. Maybe not. At this point, I'm not really too excited about more variations on a theme. And furthermore, really what we need now are treatments that work for progressive MS. If you come out with another treatment for relapsing MS, unless it's spectacularly better, it's not going to be a breakthrough because the treatments right now are so good. Most of the time, we can treat relapsing MS so effectively that it's unusual if people do have new disease activity. It's really in progressive MS where we lack a lot of effective treatments or really almost any effective treatments. Yeah. So since Briumv as well as Kesimta, since they have not been technically approved for people with progressive MS, can you still prescribe it? If someone does choose that they want to go with Briumv and they have progressive, can and would you still go that route? Yeah. I mean, you definitely can do that. You're now prescribing off-label and they're the biggest obstacle is that you may not get insurance authorization for it. So, you know, if you put the diagnosis as progressive MS, an insurance company can just say, yeah, it's not, not approved for that. But there's no, you know, logical uh, or safety concern I would have about using these for progressive MS. The bigger issue is that if you look at even Ocrevus that got improved for progressive MS, the effect of it is actually fairly small. It's better than nothing, I think. And I say, I think, because in any one person with progressive MS, you really can't tell that it's working. We know that it can slow the progression, but how do you know if it's doing that? And you never actually do. The effect is just, it's not huge, it's small. It's better to use it than not in many cases, but sometimes, you know, it's maybe not going to get that much benefit from it. Yeah. I remember like the day that Ocrevus was released, you guys, your clinic was one of the first clinics to actually have it and release it to your patients. I thought that was so cool. Yeah, actually, I thought it was pretty cool too, although it's really meaningless, like, so what? So we we actually did administer the first dose of commercial uh, Ocrevus to a patient with primary progressive MS. We were the first to do it in the country. Okay, but you know, so what? <laughs> I mean, it's, it is, it's kind of cool, but I mean, like, you know, is that really... Does that distinguish us in any way, except that we just did it really fast? Not really. Right, right. Yeah. So when it comes to who should be on a disease-modifying therapy, I know that every neurologist has somewhat of a different thought. Do you believe that everyone with MS, regardless of what stage they're at, should be on a disease-modifying therapy? Or is it more of an individualized approach? 
it's definitely individualized, right? There's no everything for everybody approach when it comes to MS. I would say in general, for people who are newly diagnosed with relapsing MS, the general consensus, and I agree with this, is that everybody should be on a disease-modifying therapy. The problem is that right now we don't have a way of individually selecting the right drug for the right person. And you do see people who don't go on therapy and they do fine. And I've seen somebody who was 70 years old, was diagnosed 40 years ago, never went on treatment, and he's doing great. The problem is that such a small percentage of people that you really don't want to roll those dice with most patients. I mean, hardly anybody, actually. And, you know, if I were diagnosed or anybody in my family were diagnosed, I would absolutely recommend that they go on a disease-modifying therapy. Now, it gets a little bit different if you talk about somebody who's had MS for 30 years or if they've got progressive MS. There, I think, it's, it's a much more nuanced approach, actually. But most people diagnosed with relapsing MS, I think, should be on therapy. And then when they hit a certain age, is it more common for them to go off the therapy or do you think they should stay on? How does that work? Yeah, that's a really tough question. And in fact, it's literally probably a billion dollar question at this point, <laughs> when you can stop therapy. Generally, I don't like to stop treatment for my patients with MS unless they are very advanced in age and have been stable for a very long time. You know, and what do I mean by that? You know, I th we know that the natural history of relapsing MS is that the risk of relapses goes down as you get older. The severity of relapses goes down as you get older. So as you cross from 50 to 60, and 60 to 70, your risk is going to be much, much, much lower. But it doesn't drop to zero. And, you know, there's some debate as to what the right approach is. If you take somebody who's 65 and they've been stable for 15 years and they're on a low efficacy treatment, let's say they're on an injectable therapy like Copaxone, a pretty good chance that if you stop that treatment, that they're going to be fine and that they won't need treatment after that. And the problem with that is if you look at the numbers, you say, well, you know, what are the chances of a relapse? And you say, well, it's low. It's about 3%. You know, 3% is not trivial if you think if you're 65 and you have a relapse and that relapse causes urinary urgency or incontinence or it causes a problem with your vision that can affect your ability to drive it can affect your social life so i mean all of these things have to be weighed and balanced and it's a conversation with the patient to really make that decision again it's when do you feel comfortable taking that risk what medication are you on so i can't give you a straight answer to that question yeah that makes sense i feel like most answers with ms cannot be straightforward. It's not, yeah. not the same for each person. Well, I will say it's what makes treating MS such a, you know, it's an interesting thing. It's so highly individualized that there's no algorithm for treatment. And if there was, you, you wouldn't need specialists. Yeah. I remember at the annual MS consortium a few years ago, there was, I forgot who it was, but there was some study, some research that was being shown and it was almost like a protocol. Like if this happens, this is what you do. And if that happens, that's what you do. And it was really all encompassing. It included like, this is the medication they could go on, or this is the type of physical therapy they would get or occupational therapy. And it was well presented, but I just remember thinking like, there's zero chances that this would work. Like everyone is so different. And who would want to practice that way anyway? Yeah. The minute you come up with an algorithm, you're going to find that most patients are going to somehow break out of that in a way that will leave you perplexed. You'll always reach some decision point where it's like, oh, wait, that 
that doesn't account for the fact that this person wants to have children and they're going to move to another state or, you know, there are a million variables that just make that pretty much impossible. Yeah. So when it comes to choosing a disease modifying therapy, obviously there's lots of things to consider, including like side effects, but also your own lifestyle, the method that you'd like to go with. Is there any guidance that you have to help make that decision a little bit less overwhelming? Because especially now there's so many different options. So it's always overwhelming for people when they're trying to choose a medication. And I think one of the first pieces of advice that I give people is to keep in mind that this isn't, you're not getting married to this. You're not committing to this for the rest of your life. You are dating. And usually it works out pretty well. I mean, it's much better than real life dating. Most of the time, if you pick a medication for somebody, it usually works out pretty well, but you always have options if it doesn't. So, you know, I think people feeling like this is a life or death thing, and I really have to pick exactly right. Trying to alleviate people of that stress is number one. In terms of general guidelines for treatment, strangely, the more medications that have come out, I've found that the decision-making has actually gotten easier. I think this is almost like having different size choices if you go to Starbucks. You know, imagine you've got small, medium, large. That's a harder decision than if you have small, small, medium, small, medium, medium. You know, like as you expand the number of choices, you end up wanting to go for either end. And that's actually happened with the disease-modifying therapies. We now have medications at the high efficacy end that are really, really effective. And actually, for the most part, I consider them to be really safe. And, you know, you've got some other treatments that have been out for a very long time and have a very good safety profile. I mean, I think they all have a good safety profile, but some of the medications have got 20 plus years of history. And then you've got a bunch of players in the middle. And for the most part, my approach, and I think more people who practice MS are coming around to this approach. I don't mean to say that this is my approach. This is the approach that I adopt. It's not like I originated this. So you have two ways that you can approach treatment to MS. You can do what's called step therapy, or on the other hand, you have a you can think of as induction therapy. So if you start people on a high efficacy treatment, that's considered like an induction treatment. And the other alternative is, well, you start somebody on medications that are not as effective, that have been out longer. And if they don't do well on that therapy, then you increase to a stronger medication. And if they don't do well on that, then you would use a high efficacy treatment. Well, I think more and more people are starting on high efficacy treatment. And there's actually a lot of data that shows that your prognosis is better and your risk of developing progressive MS is better if you start on a very high efficacy treatment. Now that would be a problem if the high efficacy treatments had more side effects and were more dangerous, but I think for the most part, they're really not. I mean, there's still some risks of using medications like Tysabri and Ocrevus Priumvi. They're pretty acceptable risks when you compare them to the risk of progressive MS. So most of my patients these days are starting on high efficacy treatments. Gotcha. Again, that's not to say that's right for everybody because you can see somebody who's newly diagnosed in their 50s and they had an attack 20 years ago and like, well, okay, maybe that person doesn't need high efficacy treatment. But again, this is where it's always a little bit uh, nuanced. Yeah. And so would you say now that Briumv is the newest one, if someone comes into your office, they're looking for a disease-modifying therapy, is that going to be one that you are highly considering or because it is brand new and it's very similar to some of the others, 
and doesn't have as much research yet, would you hold off on that? Yeah, we were talking about this the other day in the office. Like if you were choosing between Briumvi and Okerbis, which one would you pick? And, you know, it's that's, that's a tough thing. So it is true that Briumvi hasn't been around nearly as long as Okerbis. But on the other hand, this class of medications has been around for a very long time. So anti-B cell therapy as a whole has been around for 20 years, if you look at rituxan. And there are a whole bunch of them that are used to treat lymphoma. I don't have big safety concerns about Briumvi compared to Ocrevus. And if you look at the clinical trials, the data in them is so comparable that it's really hard to distinguish. There are some subtle differences in the Briumvi trial, for instance. They didn't reach their endpoint and showing that it slowed progression compared to teraflunamide. And Ocrevus did show that it slowed progression. But, you know, that's sort of a numbers game, and I don't really believe that that means the drug is different. I think that just means the trial is different. So, you know, right now, it's easy. It make, What makes the decision easy for me is that we're still waiting for some insurances to have policies for Briamvi. So until they do, it makes the choice much easier. You can just go with the drug where we know what the policy is. And there is some kind of inertia that we have to use the medication that we've had the most experience with, because why not? What's right. better about Briumvi? It's an hour shorter. Beyond that, you know, I, I don't think it's a better drug. It's just another drug. Mm-hmm. So yeah, that's really helpful. So things that people should be keeping in mind, first and foremost, maybe is what method of treatment do you want, whether it's an injectable, oral, you know, any of the options potentially the amount of time it's going to take, especially if it is an injectable, if you're looking for less time, maybe Briam V. Level of efficacy could definitely go go in that decision-making. Is there any other top hitter? I guess side effects would be another another big one. Again, if you look at side effects, long-term side effects with all of these drugs, Briam V, Kisimta, and Ocaris are the same. It's an increased risk of infections but not a big increased risk. It's a very small increased risk of infections. And that's what I consider to be the most serious side effect is a single digit percentage point increase in common infections. It's not, it's not really that concerning to me. Maybe another important difference is that both Briumv and Ocrevus, when you get them as an infusion, you can get a reaction to the infusion. And we generally are going to be giving that with Benadryl and steroids with Kisimta, you don't have to do that. Maybe you would do that with the first shot you would take with some Benadryl or an antihistamine, but Kisimta doesn't require that pretreatment. And some people don't tolerate steroids all that well. So that would be a potential in favor of Kisimta. Some people just like being in charge of their own treatment and would rather not have to come in and get an IV and sit there for two to three hours and get treatment. But I will tell you that more often than not, the number of treatments trumps everything. So if I say there's one that you can get every month, here's one you get every six months. Beyond that, I find that the preference is, yeah, I'll go with the one that's every six months. That that seems to trump everything. Ah, interesting. Yeah, I mean, I imagine too, it might be a little bit different based on your location. Like if you're closer or within a reasonable distance to a clinic to get the infusion versus if you live two hours away, what your best options would be. Right. I mean, that's definitely true. If you don't have access to an infusion clinic, that makes it a lot harder. Although I will tell people that even if you take Kisimta, I still want to see you every six months. So you're still coming to see me anyway. So that's not necessarily 
true everywhere, but you can't get to an infusion clinic, Kesimpta becomes a much better option. There is another slight difference, which is if you're thinking about starting a family with planning a pregnancy, Kesimpta has maybe a shorter period of time where it's effective so that you can maybe think about getting pregnant a little bit earlier. That's true for the label in terms of how these drugs are labeled, but we don't actually have that much concerns about people on Ocrevus or for that matter, Briumvi getting pregnant within a few months of taking the dose. So it's a small difference. Some, some doctors feel that's important. Yeah. Well, this is also important. There's so many considerations that go into it, but I love what you said about you're not getting married because <laughs> yeah. it, it is a big decision, but it is really helpful knowing you can change your mind if it doesn't go well. So I thought that was really a great sentence to say in there. Can you share any resources or your website where people could find you if they are wanting to stay up to date, what either with your clinical trials or just what you guys are up to? Sure, just click on the link below that I'm sure you're going to include. <laughs> to our I will include it. <laughs> and our Facebook page. So, you know, I, I try and do, uh, Dr. Bully and I try and do Facebook lives. I should say that at the LA Lewis Center, it's uh, Dr. Bully and I are the two practicing physicians there. We try and do some social media things relatively often, but we're not as good at it as some people. But, you know, you can go on our Facebook page and look at our Facebook Live and you can go to our website. And we do have a list of resources. We have a whole resource page. I won't list them, but you can yeah. post I'll production, put it in there. Yes, I'll put those all in the show notes as well as the clinicaltrials.gov as well. And that's a really amazing website. If, if our listeners haven't heard of it, you can see what trials are going on everywhere, even internationally. So it's just, it's really interesting if you are just curious, even in not participating in one, but just knowing what's going on. But hopefully participation is in your future. If, if nothing else, it should give people hope when you see just how many trials are going on and what's being tried out there for MS. Something yeah. is going to work. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much again. I appreciate your time. Yeah, my pleasure. I really enjoyed it. Thank you for listening to today's show. I am so grateful to have you as a listener. If you'd like extra resources, such as a video of one of my seated exercise classes, my favorite core exercises, and the opportunity to ask me your questions, head to missinglink.com forward slash insider. That link will be shared in the show notes along with links to my social media handles. If you loved this episode and think a friend or family member with MS would benefit from listening, please go ahead and text or email this podcast to them right now. Sharing this podcast will help me educate and empower as many MS warriors as possible. Thanks again for joining and be sure to tune in next week for another episode of the Missing Link Podcast. <laughs>